Well, let's stand now as we come to God's Word. It's Ruth chapter 2. And let's, uh, let's bow our heads and pray as we come to God's Word. Father, would you uh, speak through your Word, by your Spirit, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, friends, Ruth chapter 2, beginning at verse uh, 1. Let's hear God's Word. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Uh, She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the day of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The law repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young uh, women, lest in another field you be assaulted. 
So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Do please sit down. Well, good morning. It is, it is a, an early morning than last week, isn't it? And uh, I'm told that uh, this Sunday is the lowest church attendance Sunday of the year. <laughs> I said to the 8 o'clock, well, maybe the 9.30 will be packed. And so I say to you, maybe the 11 will be packed, you know. Um, it's uh, a little... Um, but there, there we go, so... I suppose uh, all of us love stories. Uh, right from our very earliest childhood, we were read stories by our parents, uh, <clears throat> whether they be a fairy tale or a Bernstein bear story. Uh, stories surround us. We read them in novels or watch them on TV or uh, in, in a movie or of some kind. We tell each other stories too. You know, after dinner, sitting back and relaxing, we, we tell the one about grandma and what she did that Thanksgiving. Stories almost seem to have a sort of life of their own, if, if you if you know what I mean. I mean, say I mention a, a fable, a, one of Aesop's fables, the tortoise and the hare. Every, just about everyone and just about every place will know what I mean by that. Uh, some of the great stories in literature live on and on. Uh, Ulysses is not only one of the greatest epic stories of the world, it's also the, the backdrop to the the, uh, the famous uh, um, piece of literature by James Joyce in the 20th century. Uh, stories become then not only entertainments, but ways that we interpret and try and make sense of our lives. So Freud uh, took the myth of Oedipus killing his father as a way of trying to interpret what he thought was an Oedipal complex in certain psychological situations. I suppose you could say uh, that scientific theories are a form of story. They, they take all the empirical data from the lab and what have you, and they, they put it all together into some framework that makes best sense of everything while that theory uh, survives. It's, it's a form of story, I suppose. Whole societies have stories, uh, a narrative, uh, the American dream, a positive sort of uh, story. Or a lot more negatively, the Nazis uh, told the story of the stab in the back to legitimate what they were planning to do. Or, or phrases like, Rome was not built in a day, evoke a story. You know, we tell ourselves stories as well. If you listen carefully, there's a narrative going on in your own mind and heart. 
we have a story about how we were brought up. How we got the job that we got. How we got to be the individuals or characters or personalities that we are today. A story, a narrative going on in the internal workings of the mind. One of the most important steps in spiritual growth is to bring the stories we tell ourselves into line with the Bible, the Bible story, the gospel story. To mesh our lives with that narrative. That, that is why it, so much of the Bible is story. You see, stories do not simply tell you things. They, they create an imaginative world for you to explore and to look at the truth from a variety of angles and perspectives, from that of Ruth or Boaz or Naomi or even the other harvesters who perhaps were wondering why it was that Ruth was being given such preferential treatment. You see, it's one thing to be told that Jesus died for you, that justification is by faith alone, that we are to walk in the Spirit with all love, joy, peace, patience, and self-control, and, and all the rest. It's one thing to be told that. It's another thing to actually live like that. And the difference is often the story we tell ourselves, I find. What do I mean by that? So when you meet someone who's about to do something a little bit crazy from a moral or even a logical point of view, the reason is usually the story they are narrating to themselves. So for instance, uh, that teacher who's been on the news recently for marrying a just-graduated high school student and, and leaving his family to do it. Well, he's telling himself a story that legitimates his actions, the story of, of rights. He, he has the right to do what he feels like doing at whatever damage to anyone else and whatever the rest of society says. Or the uh, Oxford academic who recently published a, a paper that argued for not just abortion, but post-birth abortion. It's, it, it, there's a lot of sort of ethical argument in, in that, but that is telling herself a story that legitimates it, the story of, of rights. The parent may do what is most convenient for them at whatever cost to anyone else. It's not specified, but that's the narrative. The story of rights can actually be also religious even. Iran has the right to nuclear weapons, nuclear power at least. 
And this uh, narrative, conversely of, of rights, is, is found, described in the Bible. The older brother in Jesus' prodigal son story has, he feels, the right to his father's special treatment. But the story of the Bible is not the story of rights, but the story of grace, of mercy, of favor. Favor, as Ruth chapter 2 puts it. So come with me and explore the story of unmerited favor. First, through what must have appeared to them at the time to be yet another instance of bad luck. Now, of course, as Christians, we know that there is no such thing as luck at all. Perhaps you know the story of the horse and his boy, uh, C.S. Lewis's, uh, one of C.S. Lewis's Narnia stories. And at one point, the hermit who greets Shasta, the boy in the story, who's been saying that he's had lots of bad luck, uh, the, the hermit says to Shasta that in all his hundred years on this earth, he had never seen anything that could be called luck or fortune or chance. We know that's the case, and perhaps they did too, but they must have wondered, I think, uh, you know, Naomi's husband died, her two sons died, one of her two daughters-in-law left her. That's the backstory. And now Ruth and Naomi are together, they've returned to Bethlehem at barley harvest, and that's the spring. They've returned, but they still had nothing to eat or very little. You see, they, the fact that Ruth went gleaning shows that they were very poor. Only the very poor went gleaning in the fields. What on earth was going on? They must have felt bad luck. They, as it were, had traveled back from Afghanistan, starving, hungry. They'd arrived at the airport, and McDonald's and the Outback Steakhouse was open for business, but they had no money for food. As, as it were, at home, sitting there drooling, I think we can imagine, Ruth finally determines to go off and do the Israelite equivalent of panhandling. The Rockefellers from Westchester County had gone from sharecroppers in White Plains, Georgia, to beggars on the Magnificent Mile. Food, food everywhere, but not a drop to eat. And we indicate uh, sometimes this feeling that we can have with uh, a phrase like, it never rains, but it pours, we say. And sometimes perhaps it does feel like the stars are in alignment against us. Uh, I remember once when Rochelle and I had finally, after months and months of hard work and perhaps overwork, we'd managed to, to finally go out on a date and we were out there with a couple of friends and we'd sat down at the, the restaurant and we'd, we'd exhaled, we'd breathed, you know, <sighs> Open the menus only immediately to get a phone call that there was water gushing through the ceiling of the apartment. You know. I remember before I got married traveling to 
preach and finding that I'd managed to arrive without my sh- shoes, my preaching shoes. Uh, my, my daughter call, used to call them my peaching shoes. Right? You know, shirt, tie, smart pants, none of it had come with me for some reason or other. You know the kind of thing I mean. It just seems to be all going against you. It just, and people then can become obsessed by luck. Touch wood, they say. Don't jinx it, someone says. Sports stars have their routine before they go out to play, don't they? They have to stick to that routine. Or do not shave during a tennis tournament for luck. Even Napoleon said his generals must above all have luck. And in fact, Mark Twain even wrote a little-known story about a general who was an idiot but was acclaimed because he had sheer dumb luck. Now, I don't know whether Ruth and Naomi were thinking like this, but the narrator seems to suggest it, uh, the storyteller of this book, when he says in verse 3, as it happened, or she happened, by happenstance, luck, fortune. But it was not luck or fortune, it was the hidden hand of God. And when they look back on the event, uh, so often when we look back on the circumstances of our lives, we can see how God has been at work, even when we cannot at the time. When they look back, they realize that it was God. So verse 20, God has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. God arranged the whole thing. It was not happenstance, luck or fortune. It was a plan. It was providence. Providence. My friend, you will be miserable. You will make poor decisions. You will give up when you should keep going. You will abandon your post of duty. You will declare yourself cursed or forgotten or forsaken, as Naomi was wondering, as she said in verse. 20, forsaken, unless you tell yourself the story of providence, not luck. Providence never means passivity. Ruth went and did something about their hunger. So the Christian doctrine of providence is not the Islamic doctrine of fate. As Paul in Corinth, when God uh, uh, spoke to him and said that he had many people in that city, Paul therefore determined to stay there because God was in charge. As Paul said, he worked with all God's energy, which so powerfully works in him, or he gave himself for the sake of the elect. It's all, it's all for poor hand and glove scenario. Fate says, I can do nothing about it. Inshallah. That's the doctrine of luck in secular or religious form. The dice falls on black 
or red. It, it just happens. Lightning strikes. Cross your fingers. Providence says that God himself is constantly arranging, organizing, moving events, people, thinking, feeling, things for the benefit of those he loves. For those who love God, all things work together for good. Therefore, we are active, committed. Because we know the universe is like this, even when we do not see the hidden hand of God, we can still get up and even go begging if necessary. God will provide, we tell ourselves that story, one way or another. Even second through what appeared to be not just bad luck, but also what appeared, I think, must have appeared to them to have been a rather bad decision by this point. So a bad decision, second. Now Ruth, it's pretty obvious, was a rather pretty young woman. Twice in the story we are told that it was a good thing that Boaz was making sure that none of the men would hassle her. Uh, Ruth is a bit like one of those young, good-looking women who walk past a building site and are embarrassed by the stares and comments. She would go on the train and someone would chat her up. She looked nice. She was eligible. What was she doing with Naomi, she must have thought in her darker moments. Her sister had gone back to find a man. She was stuck with her mother-in-law, impoverished, no prospects, on the route to becoming an old maid. Oh yeah, a man might catcall her, but she had no dowry. She had gone from being a rather wealthy, pretty heiress, the princess of Moab, to gleaning for food, not much better than a beggar. Surely this was a bad decision, she must have been saying. You know, often we tell ourselves a story that we have made bad decisions. We were so stupid to do the right thing, naive to do the right thing by that person. We should have looked after number one. How dumb could we have been to stick by him all those years we... We gave the best years of our life to that ministry, and what did we get out of it? We supported that person, and what thanks did we get? I wonder if that is how Archibald Lang Fleming felt. In 1909-10, he lived in an igloo with two Eskimo families. Life in a crowded hut, he wrote, had many obvious disadvantages. The fetid atmosphere was sickening. The acrid smoke from the blubber lamps was not an aromatic disinfectant. I think he must have had a sense of humor here. 
Though, he says, when it caused us discomfort, the hole in the roof was cleared and a better circulation of air was created. It's looking on the bright side, isn't it? At least there's a hole in the roof. What Commander Perry wrote of Eskimo dwellings was true. A night in one of those igloos with a family at home is an offense to every civilized sense. In fact, that winter, the whole settlement was almost wiped out because of the the direction of the winds. What a bad decision, he must have been saying. Yet, this Christian leader said, because we have been so closely linked with the people in their days of strain and adversity, and because we had helped them to the limit of our resources, we discovered a brotherhood of feeling and action which drew us together as nothing else could have done and made us feel an at-oneness which we had not known before. And uh, the historian of Christian mission, Bishop Stephen Neal, says that by 1960, about 80% of all the Eskimos in Canada were Anglican Christians. Ruth says, why have I found favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? She's wondering as, as Boaz begins to express God's favor to Ruth. She had no idea she was in the way of God's providential care. She was telling herself the story of bad decisions and bad luck. Boaz tells her the gospel story. We need people to do that for us. Now, you, you left home to take care of God's people in God's place under God's covenant, he says. That's like sheltering under the wings of a mother hen. That's the picture of the word that he uses there. No, he's taking care of you right now, here, at this moment. This is not bad luck. This was not a bad decision. All things work together for the good of those who love God. Stick to him. Stick to his people. You are in the right place doing the right thing, and God is taking care of you right now, he says. I want you to tell yourself that story. Now, you may say, how? How, pastor, do I rewire the narrative of my life to see not bad luck or bad decisions, but the sovereign, protective care of the almighty God of the Bible. How does someone do that when they are a widow like Naomi? How does someone do that when they are a foreigner in a foreign land like Ruth? Well, I'll tell you one thing, it's not by churchiness. I rather like the, uh, the sort of whimsical, somewhat funny story of, of the three churches that were at an intersection in a small town, and they were in worldly competition with each other for attendance, you see. And the story goes that one was singing this, "'Will there be any stars in my crown?' To which the other uh, church at that intersection uh, was singing, no, not one. 
And uh, the third is said to have been replying, Oh, that will be glory for me. I was asked this week how in places like Wheaton, where there are so many churches, how do you decide which church to go to? You know, you look at their web pages and they have similar doctrinal statements. Well, what you're looking for is a church that teaches the Redeemer, sometimes called a good biblical theology. You're looking for a church that does not just have Bibles in the pews, but opens the Bible to see what it says. You're looking for a church that does not just sing about Jesus, but proclaims Jesus as the Redeemer from the Bible for all practical life situations. Jesus is the ABC Not just the A, B, C, but the A to Z. Jesus is the Redeemer for poverty. Jesus is the Redeemer for the widow. Jesus is the Redeemer for the lonely. Jesus is the Redeemer for the single person looking for a husband. Jesus is the Redeemer for the person wondering whether they have made the right decision to stick by their man. Jesus is the Redeemer for wealthy Boaz, the man of standing, with all his cares from his many business demands, as much as Jesus is the Redeemer for Ruth. The pretty young thing trying to do what is right and wondering whether the right thing will happen as a result. It is unmerited favor. Providence is at work for those who take refuge under the wings of God. How? How can this be? It's not a story of rights. It's a story of grace, mercy, unmerited favor. How? By the Redeemer, third. Now, of course, uh, you know, this Redeemer is mentioned very briefly in verse 20. uh, But uh, those of us who know the book will know it's the first appearance of the key figure of Boaz as the kinsman Redeemer. And those of you who know the book of Ruth will realize that there is a lot of technical discussion about how this kinsman redeemer sort of functioned at the time. Very basically, Ruth was part of the same wider family as Boaz. And in ancient Israel, close male relatives had a responsibility to take care of those around them in the same family, the same clan, if you like, to, to buy them back from slavery, to redeem in that sense, or to rescue a widow so that her husband's and her family's name would survive by providing for them children and an heir, child. 
Well, Boaz was a redeemer like that. And I know it's just a hint here, but sometimes very big things start from very small beginnings. In 1809, the whole world was gripped by the rise of Napoleon across Europe with his campaign in Austria. He had, he had done some remarkable military maneuvers and logistical um, sort of uh, achievements were really extraordinary in that year. And few, if any, would have noticed what was going on that year in Britain or America. But in 1809, the same year, one person remarked, if Tally had been taken, William Gladstone was born in Liverpool, Alfred Tennyson began his life in Lincolnshire, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. cried out in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Edgar Allan Poe in Boston started his short and tragic life, a doctor called Darwin and his wife named their infant son Charles Robert, Robert Charles Winthrop was wearing his first diapers and in a rugged cabin in Hardin County, Kentucky owned by an illiterate wandering laborer, was packed with the young cries of a newborn child named one Abraham Lincoln. I wonder what redeemers are having their diapers changed downstairs right now. Now, Boaz was not the great redeemer, but he was a redeemer. And so you see, to see God's hand at work through your circumstances by providence, your decisions, if you are resting under the care of God in the company of His people, you look for the Redeemer. Actually, it may be that you are being called to be a Redeemer. None of us should take on the burden of a, of a sort of weird Messiah complex, but all of those who follow Christ are called to be little redeemers. Sometimes it is the small act of redemption that can make all the difference, like the little-known preacher in Essex who preached the sermon that under God converted Spurgeon. Perhaps there is someone you need to redeem, someone gleaning in your fields. Perhaps you are a Boaz, a powerful man. Who is there that you can tell your workers to pull the sheaves out of their bundles to allow someone to gather up more food from your harvest without embarrassment? There's no point having resources, you know, if you don't use them. Do you want to be remembered as a rich man or as a redeemer? There are many other Boazes, no doubt, in the region of Bethlehem. But Boaz's name is still preached thousands of years later because he, he wrote himself into the story of redemption. I like the story of Alfred Nobel. The famous Nobel Peace Prize is named after him. And he used his massive fortune to found that prize because he happened to read his obituary mistakenly printed before his death. 
he saw his name there as the dynamite king, the merchant of death is dead, was the title. And he determined right there and then that he would be remembered for more than that. And he changed his will. And his massive fortune is used for a better purpose even today. Boaz noticed Ruth. He noticed her faithfulness. He, he put himself in the way of the redemptive story of God. He was probably an older man. That becomes clear later in the book when uh, the, the, the courtship uh, begins to speed up. He was probably an older man, but he resisted the story of cynicism. He resisted the story of making his latter years comfortable. He acted as a means of mercy, grace, and unmerited favor. But this story is not about us redeeming It's about us being redeemed. Ellis Boyd Redding, your files say you've served 40 years of a life sentence. Do you feel you have been rehabilitated? Rehabilitated. Well, now let me see. You know, I don't have any idea what that means. Well, it means that you are ready to rejoin society. I know what you think it means, Sonny. To me, it's just a made-up word, a politician's word, so young fellows like yourself can wear a suit and a tie and have a job. What do you really want to know? Am I sorry for what I did? Well, are you? There's not a day goes by I don't feel regret. Not because I'm in here or because you think I should. I look back on the way I was then, a young, stupid kid who committed that terrible crime. I want to talk to him. I want to try and talk some sense to him. Tell him the way things are. But I cannot. That kid's long gone, and this old man is all that's left. I got to live with that. So was Ruth. Her husband had died, her father-in-law had died, her sister had left. She was doing the right thing by her mother-in-law. And she just had to live with that. And then she met her Redeemer. You get a sense of her excitement like a like a crack of light shining under a door in in verse 21 where Ruth says, another thing he did. Besides all that, he, he also did this. Who will be your redeemer? Is it luck? that brought you here? Sheer dumb luck. Is it a bad decision that got you where you are? 
Or, is God in control of your destiny, working all things together for those who love Him, who take shelter under His wings? And is He, if you'll believe it, at this moment offering you by His own hand some roasted grain, protection in His fields, a new life, as a redeemed person. Keep close to him. Stick with this redeemer. Tell yourself the story, the old, old story of he who gave himself for thee, who reached out his hand from the cross to redeem you. Let's pray together. Lord, we tell ourselves many stories. Lord, sometimes people tell us the story in which we live. You're no good, they say. You will never amount to much. Whatever you do, it won't make any difference. Everyone's out to get you. Lord, help us this morning to hear the story of unmerited favor. Having been redeemed to become a redeemer, we pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.